Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhal. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. It's Sunday afternoon, February 9th, 2020. Kind of a beautiful day. Yeah, beautiful day. It's one of those days in February where Mother Nature is saying, is kind of tricking you into thinking spring is on the way. But I think uh, she's going to come back yeah. with a real wham. Right, later it's in the February. Week and say, it's not spring. But it's a nice day. It's funny how even just a few degrees warmer makes a difference. Right. So we've been having a great weekend. And uh, we actually went back to Odd Bird Brewing. And so that was kind of fun, you know, seeing this little brewery the get going. The saga of Odd Bird Brewing. I mean, I, I yeah, it, it's nice, uh, but uh, it's all about parking. Like so much of oh, life Daniel, is. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. If they get the parking, they'll be you, okay. If they, they don't, they won't. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried. Both days we've managed. I, okay. no, I'm not worried about me. I'm not what worried was about interesting to me their business hinges on parking. One of the reasons they yeah. set up in Stockton, right? You know, despite parking limitations, yeah. is that uh, the owner yeah. says Stockton has the best tasting water. Okay, <coughs> that's salesmanship. Okay, they have. They're making a, that up. They have a town well. Yeah. The water comes through sandstone yeah. and shale. That's amazing. Similar to, uh, you know, the great breweries yeah. of Germany. Mm. Yeah. So okay. I think that's interesting. The you beers don't o- say that many things about, nice things about Stockton. The beer is okay. It's very oh nice. Oh, my God. It's, it's nice to have it here. I hope they succeed. It's, it's more than okay. It's a delightful mm-hmm. venture. I wish those people luck. Mm-hmm. I like being there. All right. So anyway... So what you got? It's, did you know it's National Pizza Day? No, all right. I think it is. They said it several times on the news. Every day is National Pizza Day, and they kept day. showing pizzas. So okay. let me tell you something. Why, why does anybody need a National Pizza there, Day? There are two boys in our we family. We eat pizza every day. Two boys in our family for whom every day is National Pizza Day and has been for the last uh, twenty. I think years. everybody loves pizza in America all the time. Mm. Anyway, anyway, uh, let's get to the news here. The hard news. The hard news is, number one, the XFL is back. And you're saying to yourself, what is the XFL? You remember the XFL. It was the alternative to the NFL that that was introduced 20 years ago. And uh, it was like wrestling. And it was, in fact, run by Vince McMahon. And they had all kinds of gimmicks. They made the game more violent. They let the players put their nicknames, crazy nicknames, on their uniforms. They had more skimpy costumes. And they even promised for the the cheerleaders. cheerleaders. They even promised to have webcams in the uh, cheerleaders' dressing rooms. I don't know exactly how that played out. But it it was kind of a rough-edged, hard-edged X, almost X-rated experience. And it fails miserably. So why are they back? And why do they think they're going to succeed? Well, didn't they come back just like a year ago or something? Coming back now. No, I thought they came back. no. What football was just recently? Uh, it's, too, it's too hard. It's too hard to figure it out. But they're coming back now. And for those who are, feel they, they can't wean themselves from football, the Super Bowl last week, they started right away. They're starting this week. And how are they going to succeed? Well, are they the same as they were before? No, they say. No. Jeffrey Pollock, the uh, commissioner of the league, says, you know, it's all about football for us now. Uh, we're not doing any stunts. We're not doing any gimmicks. Uh, we're gimmick-free. We don't even have cheerleaders. So you're saying to yourself, well, they obviously were struggling to attract attention before. Why do they think they can succeed now? You have your hand up, yes? Yes. What is with the answer? Are you calling on me? Yeah, I'm calling on you. Green sweater. Okay. What? 
It's not all about football. What's it about? It's all about betting. Oh! Oh! I can't believe it. You, 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 oh, you trump my only ace. You, you, you undercut me. I pay attention when you talk. You are a hundred percent right. Here's the way they put it in in a very subtle way. This is from the New York Times. Unlike the NFL, the new league will allow its broadcaster to talk about point spreads. Quote, a lot of fans enjoy gaming, playing fantasy, placing legal bets. Pollock, the commissioner said, we want to support all of that activity. We see it as a way of increasing fan engagement. That's it. That's the gimmick. What's happened in the last few years and what's turned around is that gambling has become more accessible, more legal, more accepted. And this league is betting that they can thrive on a betting framework. And that's going to do two things. Number one, some money may change hands between the fantasy uh, organizations and the league itself. I don't know about that. But number two, fan engagement. That's what gets people to watch the games. They've got a few quid, as we like to say, on the game. They're going to watch the game. And that and that alone is enough to turn around people's view as whether an alternative football league can succeed, which is kind of amazing. Uh, and they might actually be right. And if they are, and I'm just expanding on your thought, Ms. Granger, if they are, here's my thought too. How long before all these reality shows are subject to betting. How long before we're seeing live reality TV competitions in which people are allowed to bet so you're, on you're, the television you're show? For that? You're it, up? It's inevitable. I mean, it, but, that's but, the secret. So that's the secret not, of network television. It's not violence. It's not sex. It, it, it's it, betting. It's gambling. It's gambling. And that, that doesn't seem like a good thing. Forget good thing. It's just, well, first of all, I don't know why it's we're a encouraging test. People to I'm not them. encouraging anything. My point is it's an interesting to see whether they succeed. If they succeed, it's going to be solely on that basis. And well, that will send, in my mind, a very powerful message. So I'm really interested to see how that experiment works. I'm not. Not Yes, go ahead. Uh, I like good old normal. Yes, go ahead. You know, I, I know where you're football. going. I know where you're okay. going. Go ahead. Uh, all right. So... Um, Big article in the New York Times this week, food section titled Aprons Optional. Mm. And uh, I saw that. I thought it was incredibly gross, and I turned the page. Despite, but you, despite you dove in. You dove in. Yes, go ahead. Despite the occasional splatter burn, mm. nudists say their relationship to eating at home or in restaurants is better and healthier without all the clothing. Yeah. That's, okay, that's, a, that's fine. No argument here. Eating yeah. at home mm. or in restaurants. Right. But this is an article actually about cooking mm. in the nude. All right. Now, um, and uh, it's a, a big interview done largely at the Lake Como Family Nudist Resort in Lutz, Florida, about 20 miles north of Tampa. <clears throat> well, at least it's okay. warm, yeah. And uh, it has photos. Not that you necessarily want to see them. It's online. Online? It's online. They're a rather um, a good variety of photos. Yeah, I'm glad I don't read it online. But go ahead. Let me just go on record here. Yes. I don't want any naked people cooking my food. Hmm. Okay. And and even there's a whole big thing and it's such a joke, you know, the whole idea of 
uh, how do you make bacon if you're a nudist, uh, you know, because of the splatter. And people are describing their injuries mm. that they get mm. while cooking. I don't want anybody's private parts anywhere near my food, mm. okay? And uh, what's the big deal about aprons, right? Uh, the very least one could do while cooking dinner is wear an apron, okay? This does not seem sanitary. I'm glad everybody feels more free and uh, happy about their bodies and themselves, but let's be real here, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't want to eat that food, all right? And um, they, they actually do limit themselves. They describe, uh, you know, the men in the article as actually limiting, you know, not... Uh, uh, doing so much grilling, don't want to be too close to a flame, apparently, uh, and uh, the bacon situation, etc. But so um, I guess it's a fun article. Yeah. It has a, it has a discussion of um, you know what it's like to be a waitress or a cook or a bartender uh, in uh, a facility at a nudist resort. Uh, apparently, some states require that uh, those people uh, be clothed. Not always, though, it, um, but sometimes the managers or owners prefer that. But apparently, most nudists are very nice, mm -hmm. okay, and more welcoming than other people in the world. But please. Okay. I'm with you. Put some clothes on when you cook. All right. So the big, the big uh, sports story in terms of established sports in New York this past week, is that the uh, proposed sale of the Mets is off. The Mets were to be sold uh, to Steve Cohen, uh, who is uh, a hedge fund uh, investor, who was a zillion dollars, to put a fine point on it. And had the sale gone through, uh, the Mets would have been owned by the richest owner in Major League Baseball. And uh, that could be only good news for the Mets in terms of acquiring talent going forward which was a great thing for Met fans to get out from under the ownership of the Wilpons, who neither have the resources nor the talent for actual management of a Major League Baseball team. But it's off. So let me explain, since I'm a, a, a lawyer with some experience in deals, what happened here. Uh, and I'm going to add something in terms of insight of deals, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, uh, besides the facts that are known. The, the deal was an odd deal, okay? The deal said that... Uh, the um, that Cohen is going to spend is uh, a large sum of money, some one point eight billion, one point eight billion dollars, so one point eight billion, right? Okay. And and he was going to get eighty percent of the team. Eighty percent sounds like enough, right? But and and that would and he he would be able to he'd pay that right away, and his he would assume his management role in five years. Five years, which meant that okay, so the Wilpons are marching around with eight point one point eight right billion right. In their pockets. Right. So and they the, are still calling the shots. Right. And this guy is sitting this there. this guy is sitting there doing what? He's sitting on the sidelines. his beer? While we, because of what they're doing to the team? Exactly. So he's sitting on the sidelines while Rome burns. And and the question is. What's wrong with How, how is that going to. Well, who's really in control? And, you know, a lot of folks on sports radio were wondering exactly how will this work and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it turns out that Major League Baseball has a rule about this. And this is why the deal fell apart now. It might have fallen apart eventually anyway. Major League Baseball requires uh, clarity as to who's in charge. In other words, they need to know. They're making one phone call. Uh, one phone call whenever anything comes up. 
who's in charge. And they went to them and said, well, this is an interesting deal. Tell us who's in charge. And, uh, you know, this year, next year, whatever. And apparently they got two different answers uh, from, <laughs> from Cohen on the one hand Not and the Mets on the other. So, and I can tell you the funny thing about this, the way corporate deals are done, there's a thousand details, some more important than others. This is relatively important. But you don't iron everything out at the outset because you can't. And frankly, sometimes you make a deal and you figure that with the momentum of the deal when the time comes, you'll iron something out. Here, they were denied that luxury because Major League Baseball jumped in early and said, tell us now. And they weren't really ready to resolve that. And that's why the deal fell apart. How could they possibly resolve that anyway? Maybe they couldn't. But it, it, it fell apart now because Major League Baseball pressed the issue. So you're just cranky because the fantasy is over? No, I'm not. Look, well, let me tell you this. A couple of things. Number one is they're going to be sold. All right? It, it, someone's going to jump in and it may, be, may do a sale when it's you actually money changes hands and you're in charge. And that will happen. And ownership control will change within three years from now, four years from now, shorter than five years. Uh, and that's because there's a silent partner who needs the money and he's going onto the cash out. So that's going to happen. Number two is Major League Baseball... I'm sure didn't want Steve Cohen to be an owner, uh, and they have something to say about it because Steve Cohen had trouble with the SEC. Uh, there were felony charges. It was unsavory, number one. And number two, uh, Major League Baseball doesn't want a really rich owner. That's not what they want. They got 29 other owners who aren't really looking to bid against somebody with a zillion dollars oh for God. every time a baseball this player sounds goes. sounds very mean. This sounds like high school cliques or yes. something. Well, it's money. It's money. Oh it's just God. dollars. But what really puts a finer point on it, and this was almost to me a bigger, more shocking development, Mookie Betts was traded. The trades, now it's not clear it's going to go through, but it will go through in some form or fashion. Mookie Betts is the star outfielder for the Boston Red Sox. He's 29 years old. He's been the MVP, arguably he's the best player in the American League, or he's in the top three. Um, Mookie is one of my favorite names. Yeah, it is a great name. Uh, Mookie Betts. Um, and the Red Sox... Um, trading him because he's going to be a free agent in a year and they wonder if they can afford his contract. And that is startling news because the Red Sox are supposed to be an elite team, an elite team, and an elite team, therefore, that doesn't really let its talent walk away because it's going to be too expensive. So in what's fact, the deal? Well, it, it, let me explain. Well, it, well uh, okay. Uh, number one, it's just to put a, a, a fine point on it, it's crazy. No team, only once before, has a team let a player of that caliber go when they're in their 20s. This was first brought up about the Red Sox losing Babe Ruth. And the Times correctly reported, no, 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 Babe Ruth wasn't that good. He wasn't that good at the time that the Red Sox traded him. Tris Speaker was that good. And uh, he became a Hall of Famer, blah, blah, blah. So that's how unprecedented this is. So what does this tell us? Uh, it tells us, that the Red Sox can't quite make it in terms of the elite teams. Uh, the elite teams are determined by, by money, by money, okay, because there's a salary cap. It's not really a salary cap. It's a, it's, it's a line beyond which you pay a penalty, all right? If, you're, if your payroll is above $200 million or $208 million, then you pay a luxury tax. And all when that was instituted, all teams said, well, I don't want the luxury tax. So it sort of kept a lid on salaries and made things competitive. Two teams have now stepped forward and said, don't care. Those teams were called the New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Dodgers. No surprise. Right, so how does this affect the it means It means they're, well, well, the Boston has been over the salary cap, but they say, you know something, we can't live in that neighborhood. 
and they're backing off, okay? The only way to compete, arguably, with the folks who are going to be in the stratosphere, are going to ignore the salary cap, would be teams like the Astros who cheat, arguably. But we're not going to have cheating anymore. And you know where the two teams complained about the Astros? The Yankees and the Dodgers. The Yankees and the Dodgers are blowing through the salary cap. They are going to be the two elite teams going forward. Uh, the Yankees are predicted this year by odds makers to win 101 games. The idea that someone's predicted to win 101 games is unbelievable. Very few teams win 100 games. They're going to, the Boston Red Sox, this trade of Mookie Betts, gets who they, guess who he's traded to? The Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Why? Because the Dodgers can pay a salary. The Dodgers salary will go through, salary thing will go through the roof. They don't care. I would predict to you that in the next 10 years, six of the 10 World Series victories will go to the Dodgers or the Yankees. They're just going to blow through it in terms of finances. And that's what the league has to deal with going forward. And frankly, I didn't want another guy like Stevie Cohen in there to make it three teams. The other owners are Why not, not looking to spend... Why not? Wouldn't that kind of even things out a little but it bit? Doesn't, but if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates, it just makes you less and less relevant. So what you have is going into this is the financial aspect of things because the... The um, the revenue tax is now ineffective, means that Major League Baseball is going to fall in a situation where it's non-competitive, uh, and I think that's a serious problem. So let's hope the Mets get their Stevie Cohen. Maybe they'll be able to compete one day with the Yankees and the Dodgers, but it's just you got to be in that neighborhood Who in order does to make the it happen. Luxury tax money go to? It goes to the lesser teams, and 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 the funny thing about that is, and people complain about this. They say, my complaint's not with the Yankees and the Dodgers. My complaint is with the Pittsburgh Pirates because those guys are swimming in dough now. They go in and they bring in a team that, that loses 90 games and wins only 70. But you know something? They're making a lot of money. Why? Because the Yankees are paying the luxury tax, which just causes even less competition going forward. The Major League Baseball is a lot to work out. Let yeah, me put it that way. Yeah, sounds very complicated. I'm sorry. Sorry that's to get too complicated. Very, yeah, that's... Yeah. Whoa. All right. Bring us into art because that's yes. a little simpler. Oh, thank <clears throat> you yeah. very much. Right. Um, anyway, uh, front page of the New York Times, an article uh, about a painting. Hmm. Title of the article, In the Corner of the Met, a Violent Painting May Hide a Painful Past. Article by Graham Bowley. Yeah, first, and, first page of the paper. First page, front page, front page below news. the fold, below the fold, Even so. to be honest. Yeah. But um, anyway, so I glanced at the painting, and it uh, looks to me uh, like uh, a painting by someone I would think was a voué, and apparently a lot of people thought that for a long time, but it's actually by Eustache Le Sur, I mm. think, and mm. they call it The Rape of Tamar, mm. and uh, more about that later. Anyway, it's a um, painting with, you know, some kind of striking action going on. People are not wearing much clothing. There's a man with a knife, and he seems about to attack a woman. Um, and uh, he's also holding some kind of um, candy dish or cup or something, and there's a female servant in the background. So something's going on. They used to think it was uh, the rape of Lucretia, uh, which is, you know, that old... Um, Roman uh, story about uh, Tarquin the Proud uh, attempting to rape uh, Lucretia. She refuses. He makes. Um, he threatens to uh, 
you know, frame her, etc. And uh, anyway, uh, in, in the end, she kills herself mm. with a knife. She sacrifices mm. herself because she's been uh, dishonored mm. uh, by uh, this king. And this is sort of the gateway mm. uh, for Romans to democracy. We're never going to have kings in charge again. They are bad people. Okay. But so the problem with the, calling this the rape of Lucretia is the guy is holding the knife. And that's not part of that story. Okay. Okay. So, so what is it they really? decided it might be uh, the rape of Tamar, which mm. is an Old Testament story. Tamar being the daughter of David. And uh, uh, her brother, Amnon, uh, attempts to rape her. He does. And uh, then he feels bad about it. And he, you know, um, she is dishonored, etc. I mean, it's a whole... Complicated, but again, it's not really clear that the um, kind of iconography of the painting agrees with that story either. So that, so I'm not convinced okay. that they figured out what. But that's story but that's not is. what the article is about. Any, but uh, so that's kind of all very interesting, right. solving uh, that stuff. But the real story is yeah. where the darn painting come from. And uh, it seems to have been part of the collection of Siegfried Aram, who uh, was a Jewish art dealer. And uh, he flees Germany in 1933, leaves the painting behind in a house that he got his mother to help him sell to a wealthy German, you know, non-Jewish businessman. Okay. Uh, allegedly, the painting was <coughs> excluded from the sale. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, um, Aram had uh, negotiated a sale in California to a California buyer. Mm -hmm. um, and there are documents to prove this. And somehow this was all forgotten. Uh, the buyer of the house says, really, the house is not as big as I thought it was. Uh, so I should really get, you know, some kind of compensation like the painting. Um, and uh, he ends up keeping the painting, and uh, years later, 1983, his descendants bring it to market at Christie's London, and somebody buys it. Subsequently, the Met uh, buys it from them, and now uh, people are saying, but this really, you know, belongs to the Aram family, uh, and it was unfairly confiscated uh, during this whole uh, Nazi regime. And so, uh, interestingly enough, a photographer and researcher, uh, Joachim Peter, discovered all this and did all this research. There's, you know, Aram went to court, went to numerous courts, laid all this out, and the judge kept saying, yeah, I'm not convinced, uh, even though there was documentation. So the Met is kind of in a pickle. Right. Uh, should they own this or not? Uh, do they own this or not? Um, and, uh, you know, this goes on and on and on. Interesting, you know, we've you see a lot about uh, this uh, repatriation. Uh, it's not repatriation. What's the no, word? this isn't repatriation. I don't no, know no, what no. Um, getting back the artworks. Mm -hmm. Reclamation uh, or something. Um, to the original families right. that uh, when it was unfairly Yeah, I mean, away. look, this guy obviously sold this his house. This is the thing now. Yeah. But uh, during the period where this painting was being sold in the 80s originally, uh, nobody was really remembering uh, or acknowledging that all this went on. Yeah. So they didn't even bother to research. Right. Uh, now uh, we have more uh, available, you know, um, digital documentation uh, that aids that kind of research. So um, you did it. So uh, anyway, it's kind of interesting mysteries about the, the painting, its subject matter, 
and uh, it's provenance, Oxford. as we call it, the history of ownership. First page and, news. Uh, yeah, we will see if uh, yeah. how long the Met hangs on to it. Oh, now I have to do more art? Yes. Your fans are clamoring for more Fun art. Fun editorial yeah. in the New York Times today, Sunday, titled, What's So Great About Fake Roman Temples? Mm. Starts out with this. The founders of this country, conscious that they were creating a new form of government, leaned heavily on the available ancient precedents. Mm. Okay? That's true. They dressed their new republic in the architecture of Greece and Rome, asserting its legitimacy with pillars and pediments. Okay, so, I mean, that makes some kind of sense. Uh, and all the cool kids uh, have this sort of neoclassical thing going on, whether it's Greece or Rome. How many times is everybody looking back and saying, oh, that's the great stuff? Whether you call it neoclassical, whether you call it Renaissance, um, as this article calls it, pillars and pediments kind of spell uh, great civilization. And we want to run with the big dogs, so we're going to do that too. So you go to Washington, there's an awful lot of pillars and pediments. Uh, but uh, lately, there's been a fair amount of interesting um, federal building going on uh, that uh, is not at all like that. Not at all columns and capitals, uh, etc. Um, and there was a, this is part of a 30-year federal program, little known but highly successful, that encourages excellence in the design of major federal buildings. Now, the editorial online, it, you know, illustrates, right. uh, gives some examples. Um, a new federal courthouse in Miami, fantastic wavy blue glass building, a, um, federal office building in Seattle with salvaged timber planks and the facade of a courthouse annex in Salt Lake City. And they all look very interesting and very compelling. And I say, yay, hmm. these are, you know, impressive, uh, you know, buildings for, you know, federal things to be going on. Okay. But not everybody agrees. And there is currently uh, a proposed executive order titled Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again oh that would shift the style of future federal buildings back to the past. Okay. And it, uh, um, it's, the, its premise is that the United States is actually experiencing a crisis in civic architecture. The federal government, it asserts, has largely stopped building beautiful buildings that the American people want to look at or work in. Mm. And they're promoting this move move back to, you know, this very white pseudo-marble, um, you know, capitals, right. columns, pillars, pediments. Yeah. Look, you know, that basic oh, no, no, of, I know what the New York courthouses yeah, look like. It's, right. it's, un it's unbelievable. Right. And the, and the, you know, the U.S. post offices. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's that, uh, you know, which has been embraced by, as I said, everybody, mm -hmm. okay, including fascists, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's a little bit mind-boggling that yeah. we would limit ourselves to this. It's not uncommon 
that when people get nervous, yeah. um, that they revert back to very, you know, sort of historic, typical, comfortable motifs. Uh, but anyway, and so the, 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 um, this article on the online version also illustrates some of the new buildings that have been um, kind of uh, awarded, you know, commissions and then turned down and reformulated to have that, you know, new federally <coughs> appropriate Roman right. look. One example is from Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, really? And it's quite interesting. You know, Greenville is a modest city, okay? And um, there's a lot of actual brick architecture, as you would see in the South. Uh, and so they had a uh, building that was um, commissioned, and uh, it was going to be, you know, a combination. It had those, you know, classical elements to it, but it was largely a brick building, all right? Now that has been reformulated, and it's now going to be a concrete building, concrete being, you know, kind of pseudo-marble-esque. Right. Uh, even the Romans understood that. Uh, and uh, it looks pretty plain. It looks out of place uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, and it's not, It's in my way of thinking, the it doesn't look like as interesting and compelling and... Hmm. Uh, you know, as nice a building. It's not as beautiful okay. a building. So um, seems like kind of a silly proposal to me. Yeah. Uh, not really the way to make federal buildings beautiful again. Well, you, you convinced me. Uh, I'm going to give a book recommendation. That's usually your area. It's not like I don't read, but I don't really think anyone would like anything that I read. But, but. Uh, it's just funny. I was looking at New York Magazine, which is always an adventure because New York Magazine, which comes to us even though we canceled our subscription maybe seven or eight years ago, there was no stopping it. And it is an awful magazine. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, I guess they want to pump up their subscription numbers. And they have a certain, you know, political leaning. They have a certain level of interest in some subjects uh, that are more trendy and others that are not. And... So I don't pay much attention to their uh, book recommendations, except for this one, because someone says in the middle of their book recommendations, you know, apropos of nothing, you know, here's a book that doesn't fit with anything else we're talking about, but I finally got around to reading because people have been really trying to persuade me to read it because it's so compelling, and it is. So it's just remarkable, and the book is True Grit by Charles Portis. So you're saying to yourself, True Grit, I know that. Uh, Charles Portis wrote that book in 1968, and the reason we all know it was because it was a movie in 1969 with John Wayne. Uh, it's the story of a, a young girl who tries to track down the killer of her father and avenge his death by employing some tough guy, in this case, John Wayne. Uh, Who's the girl? Uh, it was played by Kim Darby in the original, but uh, my point is that uh, the movie was well-received in 1969, and, and Wayne got his only Academy Award, as long as we're talking Oscars, for Best Actor for that movie. Then it was remade in 2010 with uh, Jeff Bridges taking the John Wayne part, and it was by the Coen brothers. And it had all kinds of people in it. It had uh, Matt Damon in it. It had Josh Brolin in it. And it was actually nominated for a lot of things, including Best Picture. Didn't so get... you've seriously been wanting to read this for a long time? No. No. no, not at all. Th that was the article. 
the article said, so again, we all know the movies. To my mind, the movies were okay, no big deal. And this thing in New York Magazine says, look, this is not the kind of thing we're used to recommending. I'm telling you, pick up the book. It's 10 times better than the movie. I picked up the book. It's 10 times better than the movie. I'm, I'm recommending that people read True Grit by Charles Portis. It grabs you from page one. It is a first-person narrative by the 14-year-old girl as she navigates things in the West. It's really compelling. Do you think even I would like it? Yes. Even, I don't know. I wouldn't use the phrase even you, but I think you would like it. You and I often don't like the same Yeah, I understand that. I understand. That's the foundation Charles of our marriage. P O R T I S, yes. Okay. You'll like it. True grit. Yes. Should we go back and watch the movies again? No. No. Okay. No. No. Go ahead. All right, that's interesting. Yeah. All right, so, I mean, it is Black History Month, mm -hmm. and we're actually getting more and more black history. Uh, this uh, weekend, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal under that masterpiece heading, an article by Joseph Horowitz, who writes about, you know, the history of classical music, uh, among other things. In fact, he's on another page in the Wall Street Journal, you know, that recommendation page where they have five best. Mm -hmm. And so um, Jonathan Rosenberg, author of Dangerous Melodies, Classical Music in America, from the Great War through the Cold War, actually recommends number one, a book by Joseph Horowitz, Wagner Nights and American History, and tells how women go crazy about Wagner. Uh, but anyway, so Horowitz writes an article uh, talking about a symphony, Negro Folk Symphony, written in 1934 by William Levi Dawson, okay, who was a composer, a choir director. He spent most of his years at the Tuskegee Institute um, directing the choir. And uh, this is a piece that uh, he wrote, as I said, in 1934. And I listened to it, uh, and it's quite beautiful. It um, was, uh, I guess, championed by Leopold Stokowski, who uh, recorded it several times, mm -hmm. but seems to be completely forgotten. All right. So in this article, Horowitz also mentions some other African-American classical composers, William Grant Still, Florence Price, uh, you know, who deserve you know, more attention. But apparently William Levi Dawson is, you know, this piece, the Negro Folk Symphony, seems to have completely disappeared. He also uh, wrote and arranged spirituals, mm -hmm. um, one of which turns out to be one of my favorites, Steal Away, uh, which has always moved me. I don't know where I learned it, where I heard it. Chances are pretty good. I learned it in, uh, you know, choir at... Uh, the Presbyterian Church, the Warner Memorial Presbyterian Church Choir when I was growing up. Um, but, uh, and, and then another great one that I just listened to, that uh, Ezekiel saw the wheels. Uh, so maybe we'll play a version for that of that at the end. Uh, but <coughs> an interesting point that uh, Horowitz makes in this article is that... Uh, the great composer Dvorak was teaching in New York in 1893, way before right. um, this is going on. And he famously and controversially predicted that a great and noble school of American classical music 
would arise from what he called the Negro melodies he adored. And uh, it, it mentions that his African-American assistant, Harry Burley, turned spirituals into concert songs with electrifying success beginning in 1913. And uh, Horowitz refers to, you know, the Gershwin writings, Porgy and Bess, etc. Oh, but all comes to so naught. So Dvorak was Russian. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and he ends up this article saying, um, su uh, you know, um, that uh, suggests, he suggests that Dvorak did not overestimate the music of black Americans. Rather, he overestimated America. Oh, okay. But uh, it is kind of a, uh, an interesting insight on the so, part of a Russian yeah. looking at American music. That's kind of uh, surprising. But it, again, it's amazing to me that uh, this all just kind of yeah. evaporates. Uh, so I encourage you, go online uh, or you can go on Spotify. And uh, look for William Levi Dawson's The Spirituals, uh, The Negro Folk Symphony. It's some great listening. All right. You asked that I say something about this article about fireflies having a mating problem. And uh, yes, fireflies are having trouble mating. Um, and the reason is this, that it fireflies, it turns out, use their special glowing powers in courtship. In other words, uh, they can only do it in the dark. Uh, if it's not dark, they can't do it because... Uh, I think a lot of what? majors are in that situation. Well, okay, but I mean, okay. they, they, they come by it honestly. Interesting, isn't it? They come by it because... Well, the perhaps people come by it honestly as well. Well, possibly so, but their, their lights don't show up much in urban areas in particular, and even... In more rural areas, because the sky is somewhat affected by neighboring ur urban areas, and the truth is, they need darkness. And as a result, they're not reproducing at the rate they ought to be producing. They're, fireflies are kind of beetle, but naturally they have their place in the ecosystem, and there are all kinds of hand-wringing about what would happen if fireflies' population diminished. So that's something else we can worry about. No, I, I, uh, I do worry about light pollution. Well... Uh, and this is obviously fireflies you know, can't do it. One of when the, the lights effects. are on. Yeah. All right. So okay. You know, word to the wise. Yes. Word Another to the reason. Wise. Turn yeah. down the lights. Yeah. Um, signs of the apocalypse. Yes. Another sign of the apocalypse. In uh, the Wall Street Journal, France says this was actually on the front page of the weekend edition. France says au revoir to the village cafe. Now you know. Uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about the au revoir to the village bakery. Mm. Now they're saying that uh, cafes, you know, those little cafes with the little teeny tables, and you sit there all day, and you bavard day, and you, you know, um, play some, I don't know, checkers, and while away the hours in that very romantic French way, kind of a fixture of every small town in France. It's what we expect to see, along with the beret and the baguette. Mm -hmm. And they are disappearing, partly because industry has disappeared. Right. You used to have these small towns, and you have uh, people working in factories, and uh, you know there are people to go to the cafes. Um, so since uh, these factories have been closing down, and people are moving out of the small no towns, one's going. heading towards the cities, there's no one to go, no one with the leisure time. Uh, Etc. to uh, frequent these places. And you have all kinds of 
uh, alternative entertainments right. uh, to take your time. But I think now. the complaint goes beyond economic. What they're saying is that the town, you know, people got to know each other. There was a lot of bonding going on. There was, you know, it made it more of a unified village, if you will, because everyone would just compare notes and get together on Sunday evenings in particular at the cafe. That kind of way of life doesn't exist anymore, and people are just, you know, bowling in their own lanes, and uh, they're not getting together. So the thing is, they're trying to revive the cafes yeah. by having a sort of federal program. Well, they're trying to, to make it sort of so like joint buying units and, and give them the advantage of joint procurement and, and whatever economies of scale that they can put together that the individual cafes might benefit from. But they're not trying to make them cookie-cutter cafes. They still want them to maintain their independence. No, but uh, I doubt... Uh, yeah, it's a long shot. Yeah. How, how can it possibly work? Because all the things that are... All the aspects that are making the independently owned mm. cafes go out of business, those are not going to disappear. Right. It's, it's a long okay? shot. It's a long so shot. It, maybe the people will get a leg up in terms of some of these economies of scale. Yeah. Etc. Um, but uh, it really seems it's hard like, to imagine that that's going to succeed. You know, these places, their days are numbered. Okay. Sorry to hear that about the fireflies. I do like fireflies. Well, yeah. And you realize, oh, just sad. Yeah. Uh, no, a lot. Of, actually, the tourist destinations are affected by this too. There are some that really feature the fireflies, and they have diminished the population. Uh, and so, finally, uh, we have. Uh, the final story is an obituary. Um, Kirk Douglas died. So uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, as the Times correctly describes him, leading man of a golden age of Hollywood, short in movies such as Lust for Life, Spartacus, Paths of Glory, uh, and they identify him, you know, fairly, as part of a member of a pantheon of leading men at that time, Burt Lancaster, Gregory Peck, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, all gone. Uh, Kirk Douglas being the last to go because he lived to be 103. And now, how does a Hollywood star live to be 103? Uh, no explanation for that. Uh, he was born... I wish I knew his secret. Yeah, he was born... Well, he had a stroke 25 years ago and then somehow didn't interfere. He was born Isur Danielovich in 1916 in Amsterdam, New York, a small city 35 miles northwest of Albany. And uh, the situation was that he was in a Jewish family in a town that really didn't want anything to do with Jewish families. Uh, they wouldn't hire uh, his father to do anything. He wouldn't be allowed to work in the mill. He became the so-called rag man. Which was lower than low. Lower than low. It was really low. the right. lowest uh, rung on the status right. totem pole. Exactly. He collected and sold discarded goods. Uh, apparently, uh, Kirk felt that strongly. He was in fights all the time. He was, uh, you know, he always was facing some difficulties because he was Jewish, although he seemed to overcome that, even when he uh, he managed to even go to college. And uh, he was uh, elected president of the student body his junior year, even though no fraternity would admit him at St. Lawrence University because he was Jewish. So, you know, he had that struggle. But um, he uh, he had a chip on his shoulder. His father was a big, strong guy, frankly. He got into fights all the time and was a drunk. Kirk was a big, strong guy. He went to the uh, armed forces during the war, came back, and got into acting and made his name. And he was, uh, you know, kind of suited for the silver screen. Uh, very physical, very intense. In my mind, the best comparison, although I'd be interested in your view on this, 
He's sort of like Daniel Craig, but just a little more intense and a little less subtle. Is that fair? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Uh, that's the closest I Why can come. Why am I the judge of that? I don't know. Uh, but it's the closest I can come. Because, because actors then were a little different than they are now. And uh, Well, he just seemed very um, specific. Yeah, very you know, volatile. But, He's always playing Kirk Douglas. Yeah, it, it, yeah right? but he had a, a, a very sort of different face and, of course, the dimple, yeah. his chin, right. etc. And And you can see him very suited to playing extreme characters like Van Gogh right. or, you know. Lust for Life Van yeah, Gogh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, because, you know. Spartacus. Mortally crazy. Well, Spart let's talk about Spartacus. That's what I really wanted to talk about. To me, I learned a little bit. Uh, in reading about this. So Spartacus, uh, Douglas had a lot going for him in terms of moxie. Uh, it wasn't just a matter that he was a successful actor. He uh, got out of all contracts. At that time, he had contracts with these movie studios. He, he, he ran out of his contracts. He started his own production company, and he was really an independent and made his own movies to some degree. He produced Spartacus from a Howard Fast novel. Remember Howard Fast used to write these popular novels? And uh, Spartacus... I should explain, was um, an epic about an ex-gladiator who led a slave revolt against Rome. That's, that's what the story's about. It's a you know, sword and sandal epic. And uh, so he makes this movie by hiring uh, Dalton Trumbo, who you may recall was one of the blacklisted authors in the 1950s, right. the communist. And not only does he hire Dalton Trumbo, but he insists on putting his name in the credits. It wasn't unusual then to hire these folks and not give them credits. He, put, he insists on putting his name in the credits. Right. And apparently the movie Trumbo that came out a few years ago does feature this as the key to getting Trumbo back on track. Uh -huh. So he kind of just spits in the eye of all, all everybody, mm -hmm. all the powers that be. And, and, and the story itself is one that lends itself to what's going on with the, you know, the uh, McCarthy era and communists and people accusing people. Because the, uh, the critical scene in, in Spartacus is this. Um, the climax is when the uh, Crassus, uh, who is the uh, Roman commander who was opposed and eventually subdues the slaves who are revolting, played by Lawrence Olivier, by the way, um, issues a, a, I'm reading from a letter to the editor, a bleak choice to the defeated remnants of Spartacus's army. Quote, all survivors will be crucified unless they surrender the person or body of Spartacus, right? Mm -hmm. So they're all facing this choice, and immediately Kirk Douglas playing Spartacus stands up and says, I am Spartacus. Right. And, ten second, and, and they, they say, okay, Lawrence Olivia says, all right, we're all set, here we go. And five seconds later, the man next to him stands up and says, I am Spartacus. And then you hear, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus. Everyone's standing up, and and uh, they're all willing to put themselves on the line in support of uh, Kirk Douglas's Spartacus in defiance of the Roman leader, and that's the key scene. And you can see how that dovetails with how people thought about what was going on with the McCarthy era and and so on. But what's interesting to me is but that— But wait a minute. Before we leave that scene, yeah, where have you seen that scene That recently? was I was going to pull on you, all right? <laughs> but you obviously know, and the answer— is sex education. Right. Sex right. education. So here's my There's, question. Is, yes. Do we want to describe what happened there or is that no, too much? No, we don't. Okay. No, we don't. But there is a but scene in I, a high school assembly where somebody is out in a sense. People or someone is in a sensitive area and has to stand up and say, that's me. And as a gesture of support, the other high school students start standing up in seriatim, that's me. That's right. me. So again, that's me. we encourage people, this is an odd show in that it is so mm. graphic. 
but it is a show worth watching. How? So here's my question. Here. Sex education. How many people watching Sex Education do you think got the reference to Spartacus? I don't know, but I think even at that moment, and I couldn't have told you it was the Spartacus, thing, yeah. but now it, it rev resonates. resonates. Yeah. And uh, I remember it very clearly from the Spartacus movie. Uh, but you do have the sense of uh, this is a trope you've seen before. Right. And I'm sure a real um, knowledgeable uh, filmophile would, uh, could tell us other movies uh, where this uh, scene shows up. Well, well, listen, the writer who put it in must have had some confidence that this is in the normal vernacular. I don't know. Uh, maybe it is. But in any event... That, that's Kirk Douglas, that's Dalton Trumbo, and by the way, the director of the movie, none other than Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so uh, that's all we have. Yeah, and uh, so I may uh, stick in that spiritual for your listening enjoyment, uh, but uh, until next week, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. Easy kills all the wheels. We're in the middle of the air. Easy kills all the wheels. We're in the middle of the air. Easy kills all the wheels. We're in the middle of the air. Easy kills all the wheels. In the middle of the air. Oh, one of these mornings about five o'clock. In the middle of the air. Don't go well in the so well. In the middle of the air, easy kills all the wheels. He saw that wheel. We're in the middle of the air, easy kills all the wheels. In the middle of the air, I've told you once and I've told you twice. In the middle of the air, all of them sinners going to hell for rolling in lights, you know. In the middle of the air, it's easy kills all the wheels. He saw that wheel. We're in the middle of the air.